0: Well, good morning. How are we all doing this morning? Well, you can tell me how I'm doing later, okay? All right. Very good. If this is your first time with us, we appreciate you guys being a part of uh, our church family this morning. Uh, We exist to help people to have a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We consider ourselves family here, and... uh, So we hope that you feel like family before you leave. Uh, If you see somebody that you don't know, introduce yourself and tell them that you're glad that you're here, and uh, that's what we should be doing as believers. We should have the gift of hospitality when we see each other and welcome each other. Uh, I'm going to give a shameful plug to the men's group. If you've been a part of the men's ministry, I want you to stand up right now for me. Stand up big and tall, you men who on Monday night or Saturday mornings or a part of the men's group. See these guys here a little bit? Uh, These guys are such an encouragement to me, you can sit down. Uh, When I told them about five weeks ago that I was gonna speak, uh, one of the fellows said, well, why would we want the the Scrubs uh, preaching on Sunday morning? And uh, so, uh, I don't know, I'm from Indiana, and if you know anything about Indiana, we play basketball. And so, uh, uh, when we send the scrubs in, it's usually if we're losing real bad or we we're winning real well. Well, let me tell you, we're winning real well here on Sunday morning because we're part of God's family. And so God's going to use this scrub this morning uh, to articulate his truth. Uh, so we're going to do that. And uh, I would invite you to be a part of our men's ministry. It's, uh, it's one way for us to get to know each other and, uh, Get to have some deep fellowship with each other. A couple of things about 2 Peter. Peter wrote this letter in Rome probably around A.D. 67, and his death was imminent. He was anticipating that, and he wrote this letter to the same believers that he wrote to in 1 Peter, and these were Jewish and Gentile believers and they probably had home gatherings that they met. And this would have been in, in Asia Minor, up around Turkey. Um, just want to recap about our Be Bold series a little bit. If you remember, two weeks ago, Pastor Davey's takeaway was this. Our faith begins and matures through the knowledge and belief in who God is and who he says we are. Growth occurs in the knowledge and belief of God, of who God is and who he says you are. It's that knowledge and belief that empowers us to live a godly life, being fruitful and mature in who Christ says that you are. Quoting Hebrews 4, he mentioned the importance of being diligent to enter God's rest. This diligence is not something we do in our own strength, but it involves endeavoring to know and believe God's promises. About us. What's the result of knowing and believing? Well, we live godly lives. The way we live is a result of what we know and believe is true. Let me repeat that. The way we live is the result of what we know and what we believe is true. Now, recap Rich's lesson of just two weeks ago, or just a week ago, he reminded us to embrace the life and purpose of Jesus Christ that Christ was fully man and fully God. Peter, as well as as many others, were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Remember the account of the transfiguration? The reality is this. Our faith in Christ is not based on myth, but on fact. If you remember, Rich told us to do the math. There are 332 Old Testament predictions of the coming Messiah. Nearly 300 references to 61 specific prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. The odds against one person fulfilling that many prophecies would be a mathematical impossibility. It could never happen. Remember, Rich pointed out that it was like one chance in trillion, 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 trillion? So do the math. Christ fulfilled these prophecies. He also reminded us the importance of sticky notes. He said maybe we should put a sticky note on our head to remind ourselves where we are placing our faith. Are you placing your faith in your back pocket? Rich Closewith reminded us to be bold in knowing and believing who Christ is, to be bold in our faith and in our thinking. Here's the historical sequence of our faith. It's the next slide there. To kind of give you a little encapsulation of what we're talking about here, we have prophecy, and Christ fulfilled that prophecy. We have eyewitnesses to that, to his life. We have the written account, which is the gospel. We present or we receive faith in Jesus Christ, and we receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're adopted, we're reborn as children of God. And then our mission is to make disciples of others. So that's the historical sequence of our faith when we think in terms of the broad context of what we see in Scripture. Let me pray before we get started. All this before we get started, huh? Lord, I am thank you so much for this day that you've given us to enjoy, for these people of faith that I get to be a part of, for this family. Uh, Lord, you know that you have prepared uh, the truth uh, this morning, and so I ask that you, uh, through your spirit, I ask that you help me present the truth in a way that people can receive it and do something with it. We ask it in thy name. Amen. I'm not sure if you're aware of it or not, but I'm, I'm pretty familiar with death and people's last words. I was in funeral service for almost 30 years before I accepted a call into counseling ministry. Our children, Aaron, we have four children, Aaron, Rana, Caleb, and Nathan, uh, they grew up in the funeral home, and uh, uh, that might seem unusual to some people, uh, but they used to play funeral, and uh, uh, our funeral home was an old business, uh, over 100 years old, and we had these containers that they used to ship caskets in. They were in boxes. They were in wooden boxes, and so this is before the DYI you know, takeoff, and I made uh, a toy box out of one of it you know, for them to put their toys in. And, uh, which was pretty practical and everything, but got a little bit of trouble when the neighbor kids would come over and they would want to play funeral and the kids, they would make one of the neighbor kids sit in the box (laughs) or lay in the box, you know. And then they'd have to, they'd run home and they'd say, mommy, mommy, they're making me play funeral again over there. (laughs) So, you know. We, uh, we had a lot of fun at the funeral home, and uh, our kids grew up with that, but uh, I know a lot about last words, and I've heard a lot of last words from people, and we cling to people's last words, don't we? I mean, what we're talking about here in 2 Peter is, these are Peter's last words to us. He reminds his readers of the truth so that they might remember it. After he's gone, he writes, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know I will soon be put aside as our Lord Christ Jesus has made it clear to me. I make every effort to see that after my departure, You will always be able to remember these things. Davy reminded us that it was Peter who denied Christ three times. During his arrest, he wept bitterly. The cock crowed three times. And then he was restored by Christ after the resurrection over breakfast with three questions. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter. Because of his great love for Christ, took the admonition from the Lord to feed and take care of the sheep seriously. I'm not sure if you noticed it or not, but Jesus restored restored Peter with these three questions. There was a boldness in Peter that wasn't there before. He was being bold in his love for Christ, and he was no longer ashamed about it. When the church was experiencing severe trials and persecution from outside the church, Peter writes his first letter. In his second letter, Peter talks about how to deal with false teachers within the church. Peter gives us two bookends of truth before he talks about these false prophets. First, he reminds him of the power and coming of the Lord. He writes, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God, the Father, when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Secondly, he reminds us, this is in chapter 3, he reminds them to look for his future coming. He writes, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. After sharing these two truths, Peter's last words is this, be bold in rejecting false teaching. We must be bold in rejecting false teaching. Now, we have to ask a question here about what's heresy? What are we really talking about here? Webster defines heresy as an adherence to a religious opinion contrary to church belief. The second definition given was a deviation from the dominant opinion. That's a good starting point for us. Here he identifies two key elements a dominant position and a contrary position. Regarding Christianity, Peter writes clearly states that heresy is any teaching which denies the master who purchased us by his shed blood brings swift destruction. We can say that heresy is anything that denies the teaching and lordship of Jesus Christ and his role as Savior. He paid the price of my sin by his shed blood, and he restored fellowship to the Father through that act. How does the Bible deal with heresy? Well, Titus 3 tells us that a man that is a heretic, after the first and second admonition, you are to reject him. Other translations Call this person a divisive person or a person who stirs up division. When a person in a church departs from biblical teaching, the correct response is to first try to correct them. But if he refuses to listen after two warnings, then we're supposed to have nothing to do with them. The truth of Jesus Christ unifies us as believers in John 17. But heresy, by its very nature, divides us and cannot peacefully coexist with the truth. Of course, not every disagreement in church is heresy. Having a different opinion is not wrong, but when the opinion is divisive or maintained in defiance of a clear biblical teaching, it becomes heretical. The apostles themselves disagreed at times. If you remember, Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement over John Mark in Acts 15. And Peter was once rebuked by Paul in Galatians 2 because he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. But praise the Lord, through the attitude of humility and submission to God, the apostles worked through their disagreements and set an example for us. So how do we guard against heresy? Well, we guard against it when we submit ourselves to the authority of God's word and we deal with one another in love and respect. When we do that, divisions divisions, and heresies are diminished. Paul writes this in Philippians 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Outcomes of false teachings. False teachings result in moral and the spiritual destruction of those who accept them, and people's faith become undermined under false teaching. Unfortunately, Peter doesn't give specifics on these heresies that he's write, he writes about. We're left in fear what they might have been. It's most likely that these false teachers had misunderstood the teachings of Paul, particularly his understanding of grace and freedom. Clearly, these teachers believed they had corner, they had a corner on truth, and they boldly claimed divine authority. Evidently, they believed that grace made them free to do whatever they pleased. Accordingly, they exercised their freedom in moral in immoral behavior and ridiculed those who did not follow their example. Perhaps labeling them as legalistic believers, we recognize. Error by recognizing false prophet, prophets and understanding their motives and their methods. Times really haven't changed. False prophets appeared in ancient Israel, and false teachers are still with us today. Since these false teachers continue to infiltrate the church and society secretly, how can we recognize them? Well, Peter gives us some good clues. He writes, This is in chapter two, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct, and they will bring the way of truth to disrepute. In their greed... These teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Notice how false teachers kind of infiltrate the church unnoticed. They don't show any prestige at first, but they work side by side with those who teach sound doctrine. And then they gradually introduce destructive heresies. Heresy in the Greek means to choose. Individuals choose to align themselves with a particular point of view. And if this allegiance becomes too strong, it it proves to be destructive to the body. False teachers, perhaps, both in their teaching and in their efforts, hope to gain a following. They even deny the sovereignty of God in their lives. Peter talks about a depraved conduct. They engaged in sexual immorality. Somehow these teachers were perverting the concept of grace by teaching that believers were forgiven, but not accountable and could live sensually. Such conduct diminishes us before non-Christians and tarnishes not only in the name of Jesus, that it clouds Christ's identity through us. Our conduct matters because it demonstrates God's reputation through us. Our conduct matters because it demonstrates God's reputation. Paul talks about this in Romans 6. He says, Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, as instruments of the righteousness of God. You and I are instruments of the righteousness of God. He also talks about greed. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you. These teachers were in the religion for the money and exploited their followers financially. I'm not gonna name any names this morning, but I'm sure there's a few names that come to mind here if you reflect a little bit on some TV evangelists. They exploit people, they're in it for the money. Peter carefully describes the characteristics of false teachers. They deny the sovereignty of God, They engage in sexual immorality. And in their greed, they're going to exploit you. The Old Testament is filled with examples of consequences for those who oppose God. And Peter, he gives us a quick history lesson here on on God's judgment in the past. He writes in verse 4, For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on the ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to the ashes and made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by depraved conduct of lawlessness, For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his religious soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and how to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Peter's history lesson tells us that those who oppose God face judgment. God didn't spare the angels when they sinned. Now, I read several commentaries about this, and uh, it's kind of a mixed reference here on what he was talking about. But I'm taking the position that he's probably speaking of the original fall of Lucifer and his angels, who originally rebelled against God's authority. The specific reference here is not as important as the outcome. The response? God's judgment. God bringing the flood upon ungodly people, but saving Noah, and condemning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but saving Lot. Again, the Lord knows how to rescue the righteous, but he holds the unrighteous for punishment. Now let me pause here and kind of reiterate something that's vitally important for us as believers to understand, and that's our birthright. We're talking about our birthright righteousness. Simply stated, we are who we are by birth. If you remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, Nicodemus asked, how can a man be born when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus' response is this, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. We become blameless by spiritual birth through faith in Jesus Christ. We become blameless by spiritual birth through our faith in Jesus Christ. Peter gives us certain traits of false teachers. They had perverted God's grace, leading people in error, and ultimate judgment awaits them. But he also mentions how they are marked men. In verse 11 on, he writes, but these people swear in matters that they don't understand. They're like unreasoning unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. They'll be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reviling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed. They've let the, left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Notice the marks. Creatures of instinct. Carousing in broad daylight. Eyes full of adultery. Never stopped sinning. Experts in greed. I probably need to explain the way of Balaam for you a little bit. Balaam tried unsuccessfully to prophesy against the people of Israel in Numbers 22. He advised Balak, the king of Moab, the enemy of Israel, to pursue a campaign of seduction against them. He was willing to use his God-given talents for illicit purposes. Balaam counseled, counseled Balak, and the most effective way to weaken Israel was to use Moabite people to tempt the Israelites into sexual relationships and to enter into pagan rituals. Balaam was paid well by Balak to falsely convince the people of God. Notice the denominator of greed there. He was paid well to falsely lead these people away from God. The arrogance of these false teachers led them to irrational and bold assertions about matters that they didn't understand. Like beasts, nobody could reason with them. And they functioned solely by means of passion and instinct. They participated shamelessly in these Christian love feasts. Uh, They were actually making orgies out of the Lord's Supper. If you look at this in 1 Corinthians 11... Uh, you know, it's, it's not as we would think it would be, you know. It, it was completely out of bounds with gorging themselves with food and engaging in sexual activity, profaning uh, the meaning and the purpose of the Lord's Supper altogether. So what does all this mean for us? Are there heresies in our church, in our culture? What about in our hearts? at home
1: are we believing things
0: that might undermine our faith and trust in god do we have divisive opinions or teachings that result in moral and spiritual destruction of ourselves and others there are false teachers in churches today but what's even more dangerous is what have we taught ourselves As a counseling pastor, you'll notice that I mention this equation frequently. Thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. What we think is key to outcomes. What we think is key to outcomes. Paul reminds us of this when he writes For who among men know the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But the natural man does not accept these things of the Spirit of God. For they're foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they're spiritually appraised. That he who is spiritual appraises all things. That's me and you. He who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Who has it? We have the mind of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you here might think, I'm as a counselor, I'm just speaking a bunch of bunk here. But I'm not telling you that it's so important that we understand what the scriptures are telling us. We have the mind of Jesus Christ. And we need to pay attention to what we're thinking. Paul writes again in Romans 12, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. You'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Thoughts, feelings, behaviors. Now let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. Say that I have the strongly held belief that my wife's out to get me. Or maybe something like, I've got to be careful because she'll might use that against me. Now, these thoughts or strongly held beliefs will color my feelings and my behaviors. How? Well, feeling-wise, I might experience a little tension or a little anxiety when I'm driving on the way home from work or when I pull into the driveway. My behaviors, uh, I might decide to sneak into the house or slip in, if you will, so I wouldn't get noticed. Or maybe I go and hide behind my newspaper or my computer. Why? Because right below the surface, maybe subconsciously, I believe my wife's out to get me. Now think about how differently this might be if I thought this, my wife, she's my best friend. How might my feelings be when i on my way home? Am I excited? I might be excited. I might be engaged. I might be looking for her in the same fashion that I did when we were first dating. How might my behaviors be different? Maybe I'd stop and get her flowers on the way home. Or maybe I'd send her a romantic emoji. Or better yet, (laughs) better yet, maybe I'd pick up the phone and give her a call and tell her how excited I am that she's gonna be home when I get there. right on notice the difference it's related to what we've taught ourselves our thinking and often it runs just below the subconscious just there determines our feelings and our behaviors now my point here is this how we operate and think in our relationships we often think about God How do I approach God with my thinking? Do I think God's out to get me? That he's heavy handed, unfair, judgmental, erratic, and unpredictable? Such thinking might generate feelings of being cautious or hesitant or nervous or apprehensive. How might my behaviors be? Well, I might attempt to win God's approval by increasing my moral standards or exercising more pure behaviors. You know, I might not drink or smoke or gamble or I might donate more money to charity. I do this in order to gain God's favor. Then he'll be obligated to do something for me. Again, it all starts with what we've taught ourselves, our thinking that runs just below the surface for most of us. What we think, what we believe has serious consequences. On how we navigate this side of heaven. Sadly. When I mentioned. My thoughts about my wife. That she was out to get me. She was not my best friend. That went on for about 10 years in my marriage. And if any of you know how lovely my wife is. She is the best thing that's ever happened to me next to Jesus Christ. But if you think for a minute how that affected our relationship for the first 10 years of our marriage, it affected it deeply. Deeply. Now, because of God, we'll be celebrating 45 years of marriage in April. And that's because of God. And it's because what? I had to change my thinking. My thinking affected my feelings and affected my behaviors. And it's the same thing when we think about what we think about in terms of truth and how we apply it as we approach God. Our faith and belief in the finished work of Christ must invade all of our thinking in order for us to live the abundant life Christ promises. Scripture calls us beloved and resting in the beloved Listen to how Paul opens his letter in Romans. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. His letter in Corinth. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And finally in Hebrews. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Sabbath rest. being beloved. We must recognize that there are false teachers within the church and in our culture today. Characteristics of false teachers, they deny the sovereignty of Christ, often they engage in sexual immorality, and they demonstrate greed by exploiting others financially. History tells us those who oppose God will experience judgment. False teachers are creatures of instinct. They're marked individuals. What does this mean for us? What have we taught ourselves? Are we aware of what's right below the surface in our subconscious? Our thinking is key to feelings and behaviors and engaging the abundant life. Paul understood the sovereignty of God. His clear understanding allowed him to think straight and remain calm in the midst of crisis. This kind of straight thinking, calmness, is rooted in the promises of God's word. Like Paul, we need to be bold to think straight, even if the foundations underneath are shaking a little bit. We must be bold in our faith through our knowledge in who God is and who he says we are. We must be bold in embracing the life and purpose of Christ, that he was fully man and fully God. And we must be bold in rejecting false teaching and thinking. Willingly trust God and deliberately relax as being God's beloved. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the challenge that you've made in my life and continue to make in me, in my thinking. I pray, Father, that you make all of us aware of the false thinking and some of the false teaching that we've allowed into our minds because it affects how we do relationships with one another here and with you. Help us to understand, Father, that you will help us to have correct thinking when we spend time submitting ourselves to the truth and scriptures. Who we are in Christ, help us to live and reflect that glory more effectively today than we did yesterday. We ask this in thy name. Amen.